Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, we're looking at personalised care and health coaching, and how these could help PCNs and practices to improve population health in their patch. I'm talking to Sheffield GP, Dr. Ollie Hart, who's also a clinical director of a primary care network in the city. Ollie's been heavily involved in promoting and developing patient-centred care in Sheffield. In partnership with another GP, he also runs a business called Peak Health Coaching, which trains healthcare professionals in coaching and person-centred care and is one of the Personalised Care Institute's approved training providers. During this conversation, we also talk about the benefits patient-centred care can bring to practices and clinicians, patient activation and becoming a parkrun practice, because Ollie is also a global health and wellbeing ambassador for parkrun. I'm really delighted to be joined on the podcast this week by Dr. Ollie Hart, who's a GP partner in Sheffield and also a clinical director of a primary care network in the city. He's been clinical lead for Sheffield's person-centred programme since 2014 and is a big advocate of personalised care and also the use of coaching in healthcare. Ollie runs his own company, Peak Health Coaching, which provides education and training to healthcare professionals on person-centred care, shared decision-making and health coaching, as well as working with organisations and health and social care systems to embed person-centred care. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Ollie. Oh, you're very welcome. So first off, you've been very involved with this whole idea of person-centred care and and personalised care, as people sort of refer to it as well, for a lot of your career, from what I can tell. And in recent years, you've been working to engage practices in Sheffield in this and giving them the skills to deliver person-centred care. If someone's listening to this who doesn't understand what we mean when we talk about person-centred care and personalised care, can you explain what it is? Yeah, sure. So I think in a way it almost should be called partnership-based care because I suppose it's about a little bit of a shift back away from you know, doctor knows best, the, the, the kind of medical profession being in charge, to a more of an even power dynamic. So the person-centred, I guess, is, is encouraging us to shift our focus back towards the person. But I guess it's all about that even power dynamic, isn't it, where you're doing things together using the professional skills and using the patient's skills and knowledge together in a partnership. When you talk about working to make it central to the way practices work in Sheffield, how have you gone about doing that? What are you doing in the city? To make anything happen, you need to make it doable, don't you? You know, pe- people need to understand what it is and feel that they can do it within the capacity that they've got. And yeah. that is quite tough. That is quite tough. Um, so I suppose the first thing is, you know, helping people to understand what it is and get to the point where people feel it's worth doing. What we sometimes call a bit of the mindset shift. You do have to believe it's worthwhile patients being in more control. And you do have to kind of, if you like, as a professional, be prepared to let go of some of that solution finding that perhaps we were always very used to doing you know we're fantastic problem solvers but you know realizing that maybe it doesn't always work great if we come up with all the solutions so there's that mindset shift we have to do that takes time and you don't want to just say to people look you had it all wrong it's not about what you did before you know it's not about that it's about building bridges and say look a lot of the stuff you do is really fantastic but it wouldn't it be great if we could just shift it a little bit further towards the patient being more involved so that mindset shift then we go about teaching new skills. You know, to do that, you have to know how to talk to people in a slightly different way, value things in a slightly different proportion. And of course, now we've got all these new roles coming into primary care, you know, health coaches, social prescribing link workers, OTs, first contact physios, there's a range of new roles. And there's a little bit about how we organize a system to make most use of those roles and the time, uh, but work collaboratively as teams. When you talk about putting patients in the centre, is, is it trying to move away from a really sort of medicalised model, as it were, and it's listening to about what's important to patients? Is that the point of it, really? 
Absolutely. And there are some times, aren't there, where really uh, any patients, we're all patients at some times, aren't we, where we want other people to take over and make some quick decisions about us. You know, if you're very sick with COVID or you've had a car accident, you want someone to just to jump in and make very quick, acute medical decisions. But most of what we're doing now in healthcare is more of that longer term, more planned type of care. You know, people living with long term conditions, both physical and mental health issues. And in that situation, we know from all the evidence that things are much more effective if people are more involved themselves. So you get much better outcomes. It's much more efficient for healthcare professionals. You know, if you're trying to find the solutions all the time to everything, it's exhausting and also not very effective. There's a lot of benefits to be had for everybody, but it does require a little bit of, like I said, a shift of mindset and learning some new skills. I was reading a bit of your background on your company's website. And one of the things that you've been involved with is the use of patient activation. Can you explain what that is and how GPs can make use of it with patients? I think of it in two levels, really. So there is something called the patient activation measure. The people that designed it define activation as people's skills, knowledge and confidence to look after themselves. If you believe that's really important in the system, it's quite helpful to have a measure of it. You know, it's that classic thing, isn't it? If we if we don't know how to measure it, we don't know where we're starting from, we don't know if we've made a difference to it. It's that whole thing, if it's important, it gets measured. So having a formal validated measure like the patient activation measure can be really helpful. Not everyone's got access to it, and I know there are some license issues with it at the moment, but whenever I've worked with it, I found it really useful. And what the patient activation measure does is it tends to split people into four different levels of activation. So one being the lowest, where perhaps they characterize people who don't really feel they've got any role to play in their health at all. If you like, their health is somebody else's problem, be it their wife or partner or their doctor or their nurse, but it's nothing to do with them, really. Level two is someone who's perhaps, you know, knows they've got a role to play, but really doesn't know where to start. It's really quite intimidating and they feel quite vulnerable. Level three is someone who's perhaps getting going with it. You know, they're doing some stuff, some working, some not, something's working, something's not. And level four might be what we call our expert self-manager, you know, those people who really need us just to sort of, you know, step back and let them get on with it with the odd little bit of fine tuning here and there. If you've got something like that that helps you to create an approach, if you realize you've got those four levels, then you can start to tailor your approach to those levels of activation. So for me, the patient activation has done two things. It's allowed us to, to measure it, but it's also given us these new type of concepts and new way of looking at things that can be really helpful when we're supporting people with self-management. Is this all kind of quite a key part of person-centered care, personalized care, sort of understanding the patient in front of you and what motivates them? Yeah, we, we certainly think so. What we've learned, I guess, over time, teaching coaching, is that it really helps if you tailor your coaching to where someone's at. If you've got someone who really doesn't feel they've got a role to play in their healthcare, if you start launching into talking about what they should do to look after themselves, it's almost a bit like you're straight off on a mismatch, aren't you? The first job to do with people in that stage is to work out why it could be worth them even turning up, you know, <laughs> why it's even worth them taking a role at all. It's a very different sort of set of skills, a different type of conversation to perhaps the other end of the scale where you've got someone who's super motivated, is doing loads of stuff, and your coaching approach would be very different. It might be around sort of helping just to sort of anticipate what could go wrong in the future, give them some stretch goals, maybe what could be even better, or even maybe recruit them to try and help other people who aren't doing quite so well. So it really helps to tailor what you do according to people's activation. The other thing about activation, which is really useful, is that all the evidence shows us moving someone from that very early stage where they don't think they've got a role to play to the next stage on, just where they're kind of like, okay, I realize there's something I've got to do. I realize I've got to join in, but I'm, I really don't know where to start. Moving from level one to level two is such a difficult thing to kind of know that you've done, but it's such a hugely valuable thing to do. 
I see a lot of our health coaches and social prescribing link workers. And if you like, the main job they're doing is connecting with people, making them feel safe, building rapport and helping them to move from that level one to level two. And it's such an important step but so difficult to capture in the system. If you've got a measure that picks up, actually, have we moved people from that little very early stage to the next stage where they won't necessarily have done anything different, stopped smoking or started going to the gym or done anything majorly different, but you've shifted their mindset. So I think we should be having ways of picking up these small early stages of change that are so valuable in the system. You talked about coaching there. Do you think GPs understand what coaching is and how they can use it in consultations? And why do you think it's an important skill for health professionals to have? I think it's growing, isn't it? You know, certainly now since the start of Primary Care Networks, we've had this role of a health coach and a social prescribing link worker. Both of you use a lot of coaching skills. When we're talking to people about it, we often sort of draw an analogy to other situations where you want people to perform well. So sports is a great one. A football team, let, let's say. Big money, big drama. Do you know what I mean? You, you could never imagine a professional football team wanting to get the best out of their players without coaches. Now, they appreciate the coaches are not going to play the game of football. And it's the same with us, I guess, isn't it? If we appreciate that there's a really important role the patients have to play and that we can't do it for them then we probably need to recruit the skills and the roles of good coaches to help them to do as well as they can. The evidence shows us that actually there's a lot we can do in health. Coaches that really improve the capability of people to look after themselves and take a role. I think it's important that you recognise people will be at different capabilities and stage of their journey and that looking after themselves. What we often do in healthcare, I think, is we assume everyone's up for joining in. You might call an activation language, those level threes and fours. If you can't persuade them to take their medication a bit differently or to change their diet or join in and look after themselves, we often call them sort of non-compliant or not interested or we exception report them or we brush them aside. Whereas I guess what we would suggest with coaching is that if you take the right approach, you can have something to offer most people, nearly everybody really. It's just kind of matching it to what they're ready for at that time. So do you think this is like something that GPs could use in a 10-minute consultation, for example? Absolutely. I work as a GP myself. I know the time pressures of 10 minutes. You know, one of the things I've learned across my career is that nobody, no matter how good they are, can make time. You know, if you've got 10 minutes with someone, you've got 10 minutes. It may well be that you decide the most important part of that 10 minutes is to prescribe a statin or to start someone on a new blood pressure medication. But I guess across my career, I've increasingly recognized that actually the value of that 10 minutes may be trying to recruit the person to feel a little bit more confident, to be a little bit more skillful and knowledgeable in getting involved. And sometimes that's me asking them a simple question like, tell me what you're doing to look after yourself at the moment as a part of that time we have together to sort of like draw them into what could be really important. But sometimes that 10 minutes is just around selling the time I know other colleagues have got that could focus a little bit more on coaching. So looking at someone with type 2 diabetes, and I might be able to tell them, look, your numbers are showing that your, your blood pressure is not very well controlled and your sugar levels are up a bit. We know there's a limit to what the medications have been able to achieve for you. You know, Do you think you're prepared to get a bit more involved in some of the lifestyle factors? And if we can have that conversation, then maybe I can say, well, look, I can set you up with someone who's really good you can spend a bit more time with you, get on your level, understand what's going on for you and help to make a realistic plan for you. Far more sophisticated than I could do in just our few minutes we've got together. Um, so, you know, you, you're kind of playing that role, aren't you, of advocate and almost salesman, really, for a technique you know is really important. 
Have you found then that by having coaches in particular, does it mean that those patients, do they see you less, do you think? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And, and I mean, I guess what I ultimately hope is that people get better at looking after themselves in their own time without anybody, you know, because that's the, yeah. the long-term yeah. sustainability of this, isn't it? Is that we're upskilling people to understand their conditions and to feel more confident looking after themselves. I think what I'd probably say is that I'm not necessarily spending less time. I'm probably spending much better quality time with the people that I see. Much more interesting conversations where we're a bit more honest about what's going on. You know, people come back and say, oh, you know, I've, I've really had a go at that and I kind of know what I'm doing. But, you know, it's tough because sometimes I just, life gets crazy and I can't do it. So we're having a much more honest conversation. I am finding that when people do engage with it really well, and, and lots and lots of people do, even if they start from a really low base, they start to engage. And you just get that kind of feeling of momentum, which is really quite uplifting for you as a clinician, actually. When you start to feel people get it a bit and sort of get involved, you know, even if to start off with it, we're really nervous and sort of like, you know, very cautious about getting involved. You see them start to gain some momentum and looking after themselves. And that feels really good as a practitioner. Is this starting to become a more common approach or is it just something that you know that's going on in your area? If it's not, does it take a big investment of time for people to change the way they work to kind of embrace this? Yeah, it's a really good question. From my perspective, clearly I'm a bit biased, aren't I? We, you know, our, our <laughs> company Peak Health Coaching delivers a lot of training around the country. You know, we're one of the Personalised Care Institute accredited providers and we've worked multiple, multiple sites around the country. So it feels to us like it really is gaining momentum. We've had the opportunity to go back and do top-up training with groups of health coaches, and it's lovely to see them gaining experience and, and gaining a feel in the system for what they can add and where they can really have impact. The classic things, you know, the metabolic dysfunction, so, you know, pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, you know, hypertension, obesity, great impact there, you know, COPD, chronic pain particularly, that's a really big one where we've seen um, health coaches have a real impact. I think as we grow as a system, I think this is definitely gathering momentum. It is all about everybody knowing how it works and seeing how it kind of fits realistically into the system, doesn't it? You may find that most GPs will still be doing 10, 15 minute consultations. So understood the value of the patient taking a role and they're kind of signposting it and encouraging it. It might just be a few questions or a few pointers or a few nudges the GP does. But when they're teamed up with you know good coaches around them, that means that they can work as that team together and it's doable and feasible in the current system. It's interesting, one of the exercises we've often done when thinking about coaching and person-centered care is to encourage people to think in their, honestly in their minds what proportion of benefit comes from the medical profession and what proportion comes from the person looking after themselves. And we often even do it deliberately in a room. We have what we call a lineup exercise and we label one end of the room. We say that's the person doing everything for themselves completely on their own other end of the room is the, the medical and the caring professions, if you like, the system doing everything for you. Forget people who have emergencies, but let's think about people living with long-term conditions. Where along that continuum do you think the optimum sweet spot sits? Is it 50-50? Is it 75% the person, 25% the system, or the other way around? And it's been really interesting. We've done this, this with thousands and thousands of people now. And it might be worth people doing that with their teams and their own practices, because almost always the median point sits around about 75% the person and 25% the system. There's a really important part the system plays, but it is dwarfed by what people do for themselves if you want to get really effective outcomes. And what I find interesting is when you look at the research around this, you know, the Kingsville and Health Foundation sort of done lots of research around this, and it comes out quite similar, actually. The role that the, the professionals play is somewhere between 10 and 25%. 
but the role that the person plays in their community with people they're living is by far, far the most important bit. So I just, I guess, challenge listeners to sort of think if that's that's the, the deal, if you like, really. It's like doing an exam paper, isn't it? And only answering like, a, you know, 25% of the questions. You're never going to get full marks. And the trouble for us is we're held accountable to people's health outcomes. If we really want to see the health outcomes improve, we have to be really clever and sophisticated about how we support people and looking after themselves. And, and that, that's, I guess, what I just get people to reflect on. How, how can you do that? And you obviously get a lot out of practicing in this way. What would you say the benefits of, of people making that mind shift and starting to focus more on that person side of things? Yeah, I mean, I personally, myself, I found it really restorative. You know, there's a lot of problem with burnout in the profession, isn't there? When I was at medical school, I was fascinated by a researcher called Martin Seligman. He's an American psychologist, but he was a researcher behind the learned helplessness theory for depression. We learned about that, you know, the fact that if people are in a situation where there's no hope, be they mice, dogs or humans, you know, that after a while you sort of stop caring and you kind of learn this helplessness. And it was one of the kind of underpinning causes of depression. Professor Martin Seligman was a researcher in this area. He was so engrossed in it that actually he started to become quite depressed himself. He was, you know, his whole career was around the reasons for why people are ill and depressed. So he switched in his career. He said, I said, you know what, I'm fed up with this. I'm going to start researching the reasons, the things that keep people healthy, you might call health creation. And he wrote a book called Flourish, in which he kind of detailed all his research about, okay, what are the things that actually help you to feel good about yourself and to do well? You know, and he came up with things like positive emotions and relationships and having meaning in life. And it helped improve his well-being. Clearly, the health system does have to be mindful of illness and to be able to diagnose it. And that's really, really important. But sometimes that's pretty draining if we spend all our time in that area. And actually, some time spent trying to encourage people to do things positively and to form relationships and connections. And if you like what they call health creation, it's actually really quite invigorating for you as a healthcare professional. So I wonder if in this kind of like age of us all being a bit burnt out and a bit sort of you know, drained, whether it'll be really good for us as well to spend some time in that health creation zone and balance it up. So it's good for the patients, it's good for the system, but it's probably also very good for us as well. You've got your health coaches and you've got your social prescribers. How do they work together then? How's the, what's the best way of making them work together? I think sometimes it's hard to distinguish because I think a lot of the social prescribers will use good coaching skills and, and equally sometimes the health coaches yeah. are connecting people to things in the community. But if I had to divide it, I guess health coaches are mostly that sort of one-to-one, how are we going to establish what matters most to you and how are we going to try and tailor your behaviours and your kind of journey around what's going to work for you as an individual? might be folks around lifestyle things like diet change or exercise or you know different ways of um, mixing with different crowds of people and so on a mindset shift with how they manage stress those sorts of things and maybe a link worker is a little bit more knowledgeable about groups and associations and assets that are available locally so they can kind of connect them on to support groups that will i guess help them to maintain those lifestyle changes and those kind of mindset shifts perhaps after the health coaches work with them they're quite nice complementary teams, really. But certainly in our network, we see our link workers and health coaches working really closely together and talking to each other a lot. Primary care networks have only been around for a few years. I mean, and you sound like you're quite far along the road with this. Were you working in this sort of way a bit before networks came along? Well, interestingly, the company we set up, another fellow GP, Dr. Tim Williams, and we both met in the pain clinic. We were GPs with special interest in the pain clinic almost 10 years ago. We realised in a complex biopsychosocial condition like chronic pain, the role that the people 
take themselves seem to be really, really crucial. If we could talk to people, encourage people, motivate them as a big team in the pain clinic to take more of a lead, they seem to do much better. That's what sparked our interest in it. I guess Tim and I have been practicing like this as GPs for a while, but it really feels like there's some momentum around this now with, with more workforce, with these new coaches coming on board. And I think Definitely the NHS is shifting their mindset around it. It was articulated in the, in the NHS 10-year plan. You know, it was one of the big areas. Let's, let's shift towards more person-centred care with people more involved. There's more and more papers and documents and policy in this direction coming out all the time. The fuller stock take was very much around how do we enable communities and people to get more involved. So it, it's emerging all the time, I think. One of the things I noticed is your company also works with like kind of organisations and also on a system level to kind of advise people about how to develop person-centred care. What does it mean to look at person-centred care at that kind of higher level? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, a lot of coaching is around learning as you go. And we what we realise it's all very well, you know, having skills and growing new roles. But if the system doesn't know how to put them into action, it just falls down, really. So become quite involved in quality improvement style approaches, you know, where you get teams together around a problem and you think about, well, how do we need to tweak our system to make this work? What are the communication channels that need to happen? You know, how do we need to organize our clinics? You know, how do we need to kind of talk to our patients about this so that they're not hijacked too much by this? You know, initially, sometimes patients are stuck in that mode, aren't they? Well, look, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. And it can take a little bit of nurturing and a little bit of support before they realize, oh, okay, actually, yeah, okay, so you really mean it. I can really be more involved in this and you're going to connect with people that can help me and support me. If you like, changes to the process are really important as well as having the skill sets and the kind of mindset shift. You're also obviously very passionate about the importance of physical activity and you're a global health and wellbeing ambassador for Parkrun. How did you get involved with that? <laughs> well, funnily enough, at our practice, more than 10 years actually, we were looking at ways that we as a practice could just advocate for some of the wider determinants of health. And we were, you know, as a group of, of staff, we were quite interested in exercise and we heard about Parkrun and we, we wanted to have a, a takeover day. And the local Parkrun said, you know, we're a bit busy. Well, why don't you try setting one up yourselves? So we did. We set with a, in conjunction with the council. We set one up in our local park. I mean, in a way, it was coaching in its essence. Really, you know, we got the community involved. We raised some money together. One of our receptionists became then the, the event leader, and she still is. You know, she's the event director for that event and, and loves it. And lots of our staff and patients have got involved. The organisation of Park Run is it's just one of those magic formulas, isn't it? Where it's kind of got that ingredients right. How do you engage the community and make it feel like a community development or project? You know, Park Run is really you know social a cohesion project, really, and a community development project that just happens to improve your health alongside it. Having had that experience, the Park Run organisation asked a couple of us GPs to support them in how they could have a little bit of a specific connection with health. Myself and Simon Tobin, the other GP, were involved in setting up a park run practice where park runs around the country are twinned with GP practices. And that's been a highly successful partnership approach because I think we both have the same ethos. You know, general practice is all about being rooted in the community and wanting to build that kind of connection with each other. And that's exactly what park run does. So it was a match made in heaven, really. This is the scheme that the RCGP has supported as well, is it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so how does it work? It basically links a park run up with a practice. And, and why is it a good idea, do you reckon, for practices to get involved with it? Well, it, it's, it's worked really well. I mean, like I said, the ethos is very similar and it's a really simple pairing up. So the Royal College of GPs, yep, work really closely with park run, as you say. And you can go to the RCGP website um, and there's a whole section on park run there. If you Google RCGP and park run, it comes up straight away. 
And it's a really simple sign-up process for a practice. And the only requirements really is that they go along and talk to their local park run and form a little bit of a relationship. You access some tools and some promotional materials. And you know some practices have gone really full on and done sort of poster campaigns and takeover days and got sort of you know special events at the park run. And other practices have simply just kind of had posters up in their waiting room and occasionally talked about it in a consultation. Even though I'm very, very committed to Park Run, you know, in, the, in my role and, and personally, I've enjoyed going to Park Run with my family and friends over the years many times. I try not to lead off with Park Run in a conversation with patients. And I think that's one of the principles of coaching, really, is that rather than sort of saying, hey, I've got a great idea. Why don't you do this? You know, you find out what the person's interested in. You know, if I'm working with someone where they, they realize they want to kind of adjust their lifestyle a bit, I might sort of say, well, tell me what sort of things interest you then. You know, and if they sort of say, well, actually, you know, I, I quite like getting a bit fitter and getting outside in the open space and so on. I sort of they might say, well, so what sort of things have come to mind then? And then they might sort of go, well, I, I used to run a bit and I've sort of, I wonder if I get back into that. That might then lead me into, well, actually, you know, I don't know if you've heard of Park Run. It's a really great opportunity to perhaps kind of meet you at the things that you're really interested in. It's a great kind of illustration, really. If you, you know, with any coaching thing, if you lead off with your idea, it's nowhere near as powerful as if you actually kind of connect them to something once you've found out what really yeah. matters and what's really important to them. Yeah, and running's not for everyone, is it? So, um <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Although what's interesting is that Park Run run a, a big campaign recently called Park Walk. Oh, have they? They really celebrate the fact that Park Run times were getting slower because it means it's more inclusive. And Park Run is not about turning up in your lycra and, and trying to run your PB. It is for some people, but the, the main ethos of it is just to sort of, you know, work, get together with other people that are kind of really welcoming and warm and, and enjoy being in, in a park, beautiful local park and having a bit of exercise and, and a coffee and a chat afterwards. You know, it's much more that. So they're really happy that more people are walking than running that. Talking about all this, you know, coaching, physical activity, it is all about helping people, you know, like you say, take control of their health, or maybe help them be more healthy as well or better manage their conditions. You're a clinical director as well. One of the things that obviously the primary care networks are going to sort of be pushed towards looking at in the coming years is health inequalities, population health. How do you think all these things can kind of fit together to sort of tackle that population health agenda? Because to me, it seems like quite a big thing for networks to have to think about, particularly when general practice is as busy as it is now. But are there things like Parkrun that networks can start doing now that will help feed into that? I totally get it. It can seem really overwhelming, can't it? When suddenly everybody goes, oh, right. Oh, so it's not just medicine we've got to do now in primary care. We've got to do poverty and housing and community development as well. And it, it feels like, oh, goodness, haven't we got enough on our, on our plates? Part of the reason why I've stayed a clinical director right from the start, probably like a lot of the listeners out there, you know, I, I went into medicine and healthcare, not just purely for the practice of medicine. I went in it because I was interested in what helps people to live a good life and to flourish. And I think what I've learned is that um, medicine plays a part in that, but it is actually only a, a kind of supporting part in the much bigger picture of what happens in your community and your population and where you live and all those wider determinants of health. So although we've got to be really good at what we do in medicine, I think if we want to be really effective and impactful, you know, primary care sits that lovely interface between medicine and the community. I think what we should charge ourselves with doing as primary care networks is to building that bridge between the, the medical profession and the skills we have and community development and, and populations that are developing to be connected and support each other. 
And I think that's what primary care networks have got a fantastic opportunity to do. Um, you know, there's a lot of these new roles that can help that, as we've talked about. Um, but there's also lots of new relationships building up. You know, so there are lots and lots of players that want to support this. In our network, for example, you know, there's a community anchor organization called Healy Trust. It's been in our area for 25 years. They've helped regeneration of parks and local um, sort of community buildings. We've created this memorandum of, of understanding with them where we kind of uh, shared some of our additional role funding with them. So we've agreed that 25% of our additional roles is managed by them and they employ people to look at the social determinants of health. And that partnership three years on now is really maturing. You know, so we're not just in it by ourselves. You know, not everyone is lucky to have a Healy Trust, but there's always primary schools, there's local businesses, local associations and church groups and so on. Of course, there's the other healthcare services as well. So, you know, you've got your sort of your hospital and your community services from the hospital. So when you actually draw people together and build the relationships around this focus of how do we improve the lot of the people we're serving in our local patch, it becomes really interesting. It's not just primary care on its own. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And thanks so much to Ollie for taking the time to talk to me. I'm back next week with Nick for our regular news review. In the meantime, don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice on our website at gponline.com. 